Please turn with me to your study outlines, and as you're turning, uh, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us today for our study of God's Word. also want to welcome our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us here today. We've been starting a series, started last Sunday, called Clarity, Clarifying Questions About Faith. And we've been talking about this whole um, leap of faith, that everything takes a leap of faith. Everybody lives by faith. It's just, what are you going to put your faith in? And so we talked last Sunday about um, it, it takes a leap to believe, of faith to believe that there's a God, but it also takes a, a bigger leap of faith, I would say, more faith to take a leap to say, I believe everything that we see around us just happened by random chance. So everybody lives by faith. It's just what leap of faith you choose to make. Uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago with 10 reasons why we believe the New Testament writers were telling the truth. And it takes a leap of faith to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. But it also takes a leap of faith to deny all the evidence and to say he was not the Son of God. And today we're going to talk about the leap of faith that is the Bible reliable. It takes a leap of faith to believe that the Bible is, is God's Word. But it also takes, I believe, a way bigger uh, leap of faith to ignore all the evidence that it is God's word and to take the leap of faith uh, that it is not. Is the Bible reliable? Is there more evidence for making the leap of faith that it is reliable or that it is not reliable? By the way, before I go on, I just want to demonstrate, uh, Sandra Jones is demonstrating the proper way to dress for church. Sandra, would you stand up? This is the way it should be. There she is. There she is. All right. Just want you to know, just properly attired for church. Let me tell you how I became a Bible major. And this is not to speak against any other major. Uh, Ryan Burroughs, who was our drummer at the 830 service, is a philosophy major at my alma mater, Wheaton. Uh, my daughter, uh, Leah, was an English literature major at, at Biola. So nothing against other majors. But when I came to Wheaton, the first thing I decided, I'm going to be a philosophy major. It, so it sounded cool. I knew I wouldn't have a job when I got out of college. But at any rate, uh, it would be fun to talk about philosophy for four years. And so I was a philosophy major. My first class was with Dr. Arthur Holmes. He's one of the greatest Christian philosophers in all of American history. And I took a class from him on Plato's Republic. And when it was all done, I realized I liked Plato's Republic, but I did not love Plato's Republic. So I said, let's change majors. Let's try being a literature major. I love great works of, of literature. So I became a literature major. My first class my sophomore year as a literature major was with Dr. Joseph McClatchy. And one of the great minds in American literature and in American history, just an unbelievable teacher, uh, unbelievable scholar. But halfway through the class, we're sitting in class one day, and there's small class, between 20 and 30 people in the classroom. He's sitting at his desk reading from Beowulf. Now, Beowulf is the oldest English poem from about a thousand, over a thousand years ago. It's the first uh, English poem that we have. And he's reading it, and as he's reading it, He's overcome with emotion, and he begins to weep over the text of Beowulf, begins to cry in class, and he can't go on anymore. He raises his hand and goes, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just can't go on. This is too moving. This is too moving. Class dismissed. So we all looked at each other and kind of snuck out of class, and then we got to the door. We ran as fast as we could get, you know, and I realized that even though I liked Beowulf, it would never move me to tears. And so I became a Bible major. And so this is the book that will bring me to tears. This is the book that I love. And this is the book that has changed my life. How many of you have been changed by this book? Let me, let me see your hands. Uh, it's a book that can guide us in every area of life as well. 
a legalistic seminary student, wanted to have a scriptural basis for everything that he did. So he felt he was on solid ground if he could quote a Bible verse to okay his actions. He did all right until he began to fall in love with a beautiful co-ed. He wanted to kiss her, but he just couldn't find a verse to okay it. So true to his conscience, he'd walk her to the dorm each night, look at her longingly, and quickly say goodnight. This went on for weeks, and all the time he was searching the Bible, trying to find just one verse to okay kissing her goodnight. But he couldn't find one, until finally he came across that passage in Romans that says, greet each other with a holy kiss. He thought, at last I have scriptural authority for kissing her goodnight. But to be sure, he went to a professor to check it out. After talking with the prof, he realized the verse dealt more with a church setting than a dating situation. So once again, he didn't have a passage of scripture to okay kissing his girl goodnight. That evening, he walked her to the dorm and once again started to bid her goodnight. But as he did, she grabbed him, pulled him toward her, and planted a big kiss right on his lips. At the end of the kiss, the seminary student gasped for air, stammering, Bible verse, Bible verse. The girl grabbed him a second time and just before kissing him again said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> so the Bible has something for every life, uh, every life situation. Now there are hundreds of reasons why we believe the Bible to be reliable. Uh, today I'm just going to give you five. First of all, reason demands it. Now I've given these numbers to you before. But I never demonstrated how unique the Bible is with regard to those numbers. We tend to take it for granted. Uh, all, every other work of antiquity or spirituality or religious work uh, was written by one person at one time in, in one place. Uh, for example, the Quran was written by Muhammad on the Arabian Peninsula um, during the 600s uh, A.D., uh, the writings of Confucius and Buddha are the same. The Book of Mormon was written by one person, Joseph Smith, in upstate New York um, in, the, in the 1800s. So one person, one place, one, one location. And yet they are filled with contradictions. So the part of the Koran that was written from Medina seems like an entirely different book from the one written uh, from Mecca. They even talk about Mecca Muslims and then uh, Medina uh, uh, Muslims. And so just filled with contradictions, despite the fact one person wrote it one time in history in one location. Now compare that to the Bible, which is written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, all with their own individual worldview, 40 generations, three continents, three languages. Now, uh, there's another three that I accidentally put in there. And if any of you are the kind of people that fill in the blanks before the sermon begins, anybody like that, I've just driven you crazy uh, for the last half hour. Uh, there's an extra three in there, but I'm very happy I accidentally did that. Cross out the three and put a 16, because I just discovered a new one just yesterday. 16 different countries. It was written from 16 different countries on three continents, three languages, and yet it has one story, one theme, one solution, and plan of redemption for humanity. Now, how, how can this be? How can you explain that? Don Stewart uh, writes, how can this be explained? By the fact that there is only one author behind all the books of the Bible, God himself. The unity of the Bible is only one unique feature that separates it from all the other books that have ever been written. Uh, Bernard Ram, I don't have that in your study outline, but let me just share this one with you. A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. 
What book on philosophy or religion or psychology of classical or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible with such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet? Um, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. Every year since the invention of the print and printing press by Gutenberg back in the 1500s, about 4 billion Bibles have now been published in over 1,200 languages that cover 90% of the world's uh, population. There is nothing like it. Werner Keller was a skeptic of Christianity, and he began to investigate in order to write a book attacking the Christian faith. But as he investigated the evidence, he eventually became a follower of Christ, and he wrote the book, The Bible is History. He writes, in view of the overwhelming mass of authentic and well-attested evidence now available, as I thought of the skeptical criticism, which from the 18th century onward would fain have demolished the Bible altogether, there kept hammering in my brain this one sentence, the Bible is right after all. So first of all, reason demands it. And, And by the way, I just want to give you a warning If you feel like you're drinking out a fire hose this morning, uh, that is fully my intention. Uh, I want us to feel like we're drinking out a fire hose. Because I want to tell you, for every example I use, there are a thousand, maybe ten thousand examples that I could have used. This is the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the tip of the iceberg. This is an ice cube on the top of the tip of the iceberg. So for every example I use, there, there are thousands of examples that I could be using, and so I want us to feel like we're, we're trying to drink out of, a fire, out of a fire hydrant, out of a fire hose. So first of all, reason demands it. Secondly, science is compatible with it. Now, uh, last week we talked about uh, faith and science being compatible with each other, but I didn't talk specifically about certain Bible verses, and I want to be careful because the Bible was not written as a science textbook. But whenever it touches on science, it is without error 100% of the time. Let me give you some examples. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. Solomon writes, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Now, we know this is the water cycle. We know this is the hydrological cycle. And this is a given today. But in the ancient world, they did not understand that water was evaporated from the ocean up to the clouds, went over the land, rained on the land, came into the streams, and flowed back into the ocean again. They did not understand that. As a matter of fact, like Homer in the Iliad in 800 BC, uh, after, 200 years after this was written, 200 years later than this was written, uh, he expressed the belief of the ancient world that landmass just kind of floated on the water, and the water uh, came up through springs from underneath. And there was no understanding of this. How did Solomon know this 3,000 years ago when we've only learned it just uh, in recent centuries? Uh, Job 26, verse 7. Job says, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Now, we understand today through modern science that planets are able to be suspended over nothing. But how did Job know that 3,600 years ago? Isaiah 40, verse 22, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens. There are seven different places where the Bible says he stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Only in recent years have scientists realized that the universe is expanding. And yet, how did Isaiah know this 2,700 years ago? And the Bible is not a science textbook, but whenever it touches on science, It has been supernaturally, not only without error, but giving supernatural insight to discoveries that would come thousands of years later. 
Um, let me give you another, another example. Sometimes it's miraculous what's not in the Bible as much as what is in it. Let me give you an example. Acts 7, verse 22. It says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses got a thoroughgoing Egyptian education. You say, well, why is that important? Well, because of not what is not included in the writings of Moses in 1400 BC from the time, same time period. Here's a list of medical uh, pharmacy, lists of medicines from this time period from an Egyptian papyrus. Lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pig's ears, milk, Goose grease, donkey's hooves, animal fats from various sources, excrement from animals, including human beings, donkeys, antelopes, dogs, cats, and even flies. And you thought that stuff you had to drink before a colonoscopy was bad. Uh, this, is really, uh, this is really the bad stuff. And yet, Mo- Moses was thoroughly indoctrinated in this. And yet, not a single thing of that nature makes its way uh, into the Scripture. And, and those, that's no disrespect to Egyptian science. You'd expect that from that time period from a, from a human book. The same thing is true with the Koran, which was written 600 A.D. So we're talking a couple thousand years after the Old Testament, 600 years after the New Testament. Uh, Muhammad writes things, for example, prescribing uh, camel urine mixed with milk uh, will make you feel better. Uh, another place in the Quran, uh, Muhammad uh, writes there that if a fly falls into your cup of water, it's safe to drink it because one wing of the fly has the disease and the other wing of the fly has the antidote to that disease. Now, that's no disrespect to the Quran. That's what you would expect to find in a human book from 600 AD. What's miraculous is that you don't find any of that in the Bible. And on the other hand, what you do happen to find Out of the 613 biblical commandments found in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 213 are detailed medical regulations. And in those medical regulations are are found, they, they are found things that we only have discovered within the last 100 years. This is from 3400 B.C., 3,300 years before their time. It's like a space shuttle landing in the desert outside the pyramids. That's what it's like. 3,300 years too soon, uh, there it appears. We didn't even know that germs caused the spread of disease until 1890, until, what is that, 127 years ago. That's when we learned that germs spread disease. And yet you find in Leviticus uh, things like uh, prescriptions about hygiene. Anything that one of their carcasses, that a dead carcass falls on, becomes unclean. An oven or a cooking pot must be broken up because the germs would be in the cracks of the pottery. They are unclean, and you are to regard them as unclean. There are guidelines with regard to sanitation. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Arturo Casilone, who wrote a history of medicine, writes... The laws against leprosy in Leviticus 13 may be regarded as the first model of a sanitary legislation. Uh, Reason demands it. Science is compatible with it. History uh, verifies it. Our third one, history uh, verifies it. Uh, Clark Pinnock writes, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. 
An honest man cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon irrational bias against it. The Bible is the only book that brings references with it to the interview. You know, when you go to a job interview... And you students, as you're going to be going to your job interviews, you walk into an interview, and and you hopefully bring uh, references. Uh, Every other religious book says, here's what we teach. Try it on for size. If it works for you, great. If not, no big deal. But there's no objective evidence. It simply says, do this or do that in order to reach heaven. And there's no, nothing you can check that with objectively. You just have to say subjectively, I either believe that or I don't. Only the Bible brings references uh, to the interview. Well, what do I mean by that? Uh, Forgive me, I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little little bit braggadocious, but it it fits the point so well, so so please forgive me. But uh, um, I I have a hundred weaknesses as a pastor, and and you know what they are, and the pastoral staff knows what they are, and Kimberly can tell you what they are, and I, you know, I got a hundred weaknesses. But one strength that I have, and and actually I'm a little bit legendary on this uh, around Southern California, is the ability to recruit talent better than myself. Uh, just it, People just find it's remarkable. Our pastoral staff, excluding me, is considered the strongest around. And I literally was at a conference a couple months ago, and I had two separate leaders, uh, church leaders from within Southern California, come up to me at separate times and said, how do you do it? You just got like the, the most amazing pastoral staff, the most amazing. How in the world? And the inference, the way they say it is kind of like, you're so average. How did you get such a group that is so un, un, unbelievable? It's kind of like when people first meet Kimberly after they know me. And it's like Beauty and the Beast. And they're like, uh, you know, how did you get her? And it's like, did she feel sorry for you? And, and then, 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 they think I'm, then they think I'm rich. And they start asking me for money I don't have. And I say, oh, well, you must be rich. Well, it's the same thing with this. And, and let me tell you my secret for hiring. We've made some mistakes through the years, but overall, just just this unbelievable track record that's gotten noticed in Southern California. Just the pastoral staff is very, very, very strong. And and here's the secret to this. I don't pay that much attention to an interview because people can wow you in an interview or they, they can not wow you but still be very, very strong. Don't pay that much attention to the references they've listed for you. Because, for example, when I came to our church with Peter Torrey, I see him sitting back here, I put my references down, my mother, uh, my best friend, my second grade teacher who really liked me a lot. And so, you know, you don't put the listed ones. What you do is you search for unsolicited references. And the thing is, you know, there's six degrees of separation. You're only six people away from knowing everybody in the world. I think among Christ followers in the United States and Southern California, it's three degrees of separation. You can always find somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And, and I would just go behind the scenes and dig around to find somebody who says, oh, yes, I have worked with that pastor. I have worked with that person. I have served under them or with them. And they are absolutely amazing. Now, that's exactly what the Bible does. It comes with references. In 10,000 different ways, it says, test me with regard to history. Test me with regard to archaeology. Test me with science. Test me with fulfilled prophecy. And if you find me to be true in the areas where you can objectively test me, now trust me when it says how to go to heaven and what kind of life you're supposed to live on the way to heaven. 
The Bible is absolutely, absolutely just a, a miracle book. And we don't realize how unique it is. There, there's more history in one chapter of Genesis than there is in the entire Quran. There's no history in the writings of Buddha or Hinduism or, or, or Confucian. No, no, no history at all. And, and the history that you do find has been you know, contradicted time and, and time again. Let me give you an example. Just one verse of the Bible. One verse. Luke 3, verse 1. Fifteen different ways to test it by other historical texts to see if it's telling the truth. In the 15th year, there's one, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, there's two. When Pontius Pilate, number three, was governor, number four, of Judea, number five, Herod, number six, Tetrarch, number seven, of Galilee, number eight, his brother Philip, number nine, Tetrarch, ten, of Iturea, eleven, and Traconitus, twelve, and Lysanias, thirteen, Tetrarch, fourteen, of Abilene, fifteen. Fifteen ways in just one verse to tell, is it telling the truth? And it's as if God was saying, test me, test me, test me, test me, test me. You know, sometimes, have you ever thought to yourself, why doesn't God make it more clear? And he's in heaven saying, how much clearer can I make it? We're like, why doesn't he just give us evidence? Why doesn't he just show up and say, here I am? He has, he has. He's like, how much more evidence do you need? G.B. Hardy writes, when you consider the great writings of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and the Romans, how they are saturated with mythology, superstition, and fantasy, replete with scientific blunders. Surely it is impossible the Bible could escape without error. Still, it stands without a single proved error after 34 centuries of scholarship. And another thing that we talked about a few weeks ago with uh, the 10 different ways we know the New Testament writers were telling the truth is the historical principle, the principle of historians called the principle of embarrassment. That if you include embarrassing details about something, that's normally the truth because nobody else does. Let me give you an example. Sennacherib, uh, king of Assyria. And we know from other historical so sources, we also know from three places in the Bible, Isaiah, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles, that he had a humiliating defeat while uh, putting Jerusalem under siege. God wiped out 185,000 of his soldiers. He goes back uh, to his capital with his tail between his legs, and there he's assassinated for his failure. And yet when he writes about this, and it actually confirms the biblical account, he says, I went to this country and smashed them. I went to this country, destroyed them. Went to this country and put them into captivity. I won, 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 won. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he says, I, I came to Jerusalem and I shut Hezekiah up like a bird in the cage. Okay? He, he basically found one positive spin. He surrounded them and they were under siege. He doesn't mention he got wiped out uh, after that and had to go home in, in defeat. And that's the way all the works of antiquity are. With one glaring exception is the Bible. Uh, if you look uh, next there in your study outline, you'll see a quote by Will Durant who was an agnostic and one of the foremost historians uh, in American history. And he talks about the New Testament writers. He says, they record many incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, the references of some of the hearers, auditors, to his possible insanity. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. And there's even evidence for the miraculous uh, parts of the Bible. Take the book of Genesis, for example. Um, uh, ancient Babylonian records describe a confusion of language in accordance with the biblical account of the Tower of Babel. These same records describe a worldwide flood 
an event present in literally hundreds of forms and cultures all over the world. The sites where Sodom and Gomorrah once sat have been found, displaying evidence, archaeological evidence of fiery and violent destruction. Even the plagues of Egypt and the resulting exodus have archaeological support. Uh, Speaking of archaeological support, let's watch this together. We live at a time where you keep hearing stuff like, oh, the Bible was changed in the Middle Ages by the, you know, the monks uh, and that we don't know what it really says. And, and, you know, upon investigation, uh, I have come to the conclusion that that's not true. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they were in jars for like 2,000 years in a desert someplace. And then in, what, what was it, 1947, 48, somebody discovers them and opens them up and says, oh, what's this? They are documents of the Old Testament that have been hidden in jars in the desert where it's dry, where they're preserved for 2,000 years. And we can say, oh, so what did the Bible say 2,000 years ago? Let's read it. We don't have to guess if the monks changed it or not. Let's read it. And you read it, and it's like letter for letter, not word for word, letter for letter, the same as it is today. So the argument that the Bible was changed, it, it just has to go in the garbage instantly. We have thousands and thousands of of New Testament manuscripts that exist that we can read and compare to other New Testament manuscripts. We don't have that for Socrates. We don't have that for Aristotle. We don't have that for Thucydides. We don't have that for Herodotus. We don't have like we don't have those documents close to when they were written. Like the closest documents we have to those documents are literally a thousand years later. There have been, uh, just in the last, like, 50 years, tremendous archaeological discoveries. And this is another one of these things. Like, 100 years ago, people could make arguments. But, like, now we have archaeological evidence that keeps coming up over and over and over. I read about it in the New York Times. You open it up and they say, oh, they found a, a steel talking about the house of David. You know, they had no, they had no evidence that 3,000 years ago there actually was a king in Israel named David. Now they have archaeological evidence. This happens over and over and over again that, oh, suddenly we realize the Assyrians or the Hittites, they actually existed because we found something from, you know, in cuneiform writing that proves it. Whereas up until now, we thought maybe it was just made up. Um, archaeological evidence is pretty compelling. It becomes an open and shut case. People can believe what they want, but when you start looking at that, uh, evidence, it's, it's overwhelming. It does matter that it's, that it's real, that it's trustworthy, and you can investigate it. And I would say it's, it's kind of fun to investigate it. Reason demands it. History affirms it. Science is compatible with it, and archaeology supports it. Let me give you a couple of my favorite examples, two or three of them. But for each one of these, there are thousands uh, that we could be using. Take, for example, Moses. Skeptics of the Bible said he could never have written the first five books of Moses in 1400 B.C. because writing wasn't invented by then. And then archaeologists discover what was called the Ebla tablets, clear-cut writing from 2300 B.C. Moses not only could have written it, he had a thousand years to spare. 
Joseph Free, who's an archaeologist, said, Archaeology has confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics as unhistorical or contradictory to known facts. Here's another of my favorite examples. In Acts uh, chapter 14, verse 6, it says that Paul and his companions uh, moved from Iconium, a city in the province of the Roman province of Pisidia, to the Lyconian cities, the city in the province of Lyconia, of Lystra and Derbe. And for years, critics of the Bible made fun of this because they said it's all one province, Pisidia. Until in 1911, archaeologists discovered a border marker that said on this side is the province of Pisidia, and on this side is the province of Lyconia. And you have this happen again and again. You can read these quotes on your own. Here's just one quote that I love that just kind of summarizes all of them, and it's not in your study outline. Every time the archaeologist's shovel goes into the ground, a skeptic's theory is buried. Here's one that Eric Metaxas mentioned, the Hittites. For years, skeptics of the Bible, the Bible talked about the Hittites. They made fun of the Bible because they said there is no evidence of the Hittites. And then they discovered not only evidence for a Hittite town or Hittite civilization, there was a Hittite empire that was all across that part of, of the Middle East. And this happens time and time again. And then finally, Prophecy proves it. The prophecy, fulfilled prophecy in the Bible, is just absolutely staggering. The Bible contains 1,817 individual predictions concerning 737 separate subjects. Uh, Some of the more remarkable is it predicts Israel's rebirth as a nation thousands of years in advance to the very day that it happened, May 15, 1948. The existence of Israel alone, to me, is enough to prove the truthfulness of the Bible. Uh, Ezekiel talks about the destruction of the city of Tyre in 600 B.C. Alexander the Great came in in 332 B.C. and fulfilled every last detail of that prophecy. Uh, Daniel predicted four great successive world kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And he was so specific in his prophecy that skeptics of the Bible said, this can't be prophecy, it has to be history. There's no way Daniel wrote this before the events. He had to have written them after the events. But then with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered concrete evidence that Daniel did indeed write his prophecies before the event, not history after the event. The Bible predicted the arrival of the Messiah on Palm Sunday and his death five days later, and it predicted it hundreds of years in advance to the very day that it happened. The Bible not only predicted the entry of the Messiah into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the very day, but his execution 173,885 days in advance. Now here's what's important about that. 34% of the Bible is prophecy. That means if a third of the Bible is prophecy, a third of it is history, and a third of it is teaching, that means for every word of teaching in the Bible, we have two references that you can demonstrate, is it true or is it not, objectively. So for every line the Bible gives us in the interview as to whether we should take the leap of faith that it's reliable or not, there are two concrete references, objectively speaking to it, from history, from prophecy, from archaeology, and, and from science. Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 23. God says, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? 
Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's little g. Four chapters later, God says this. I am God, capital G, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Daniel 2, verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. And then Jesus in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. G.B. Hardy writes, only the supernatural mind can have prior knowledge to the natural mind. If then the Bible has foreknowledge, historical and scientific, beyond the permutation of chance, it truly then bears the fingerprints of God. Because we believe that this book has the fingerprints of God. When it says to us things like, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, because then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. We meditate on it. When it says things like, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. We will trust. When it says those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We decide that we will wait on the Lord. When it says fear thou not for I am with thee and be not dismayed because I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yeah, I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. We will not fear. And when Jesus says that the wise man or the wise woman that puts these words and hears my words and puts them into action is like a wise man or a wise woman who built their house on the rock. And when the hurricanes came, the rock held it and the house was not swept away. We build our lives on this rock. And when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me when he says it, We follow because this book is reliable. You can base your life on it. You can trust it. You can build every decision you make on it, and it will not fail you. And God didn't say, take a leap of faith. He said, take a leap of faith off of the pedestal of two-thirds of the Bible that can be objectively confirmed. Test me, test me, test me, test me, test me. And if you find me to be true in the areas where you can test it, Trust me in the areas where you'd have to take a leap of faith. And all God's family said, amen. A praise band is going to come up now for one final song. And as they do, let's watch this together. So I think, I think it's important to understand the way the Bible holds together. This is one book, but it's really a compilation of of 66 books, right? Written by over 40 authors over like 1,600 years. And I, I think what puts the pieces of the Bible together for me is that really all of those uh, 66 books are, are telling one story. 
And the fact that we have this, this one book that is written over such a long period of time by so many different people, and ultimately it all connects and points to Jesus, that's brought me a huge amount of um, comfort in it because that's just impossible. I mean, it, it's, it's impossible for you know, to make a, a book work like that. What started convincing me, it was a little by little process. You know, like it mentioned cities, it mentions names, it mentions, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's talking that it's history. And so a big thing for me was to say, like, all right, is this mythical or are these places real? And so then I started looking into the historicity of the scriptures. Because you can go to other religious documents and they can't find that, as I was comparing a bunch. Then a big question was also, you know, like, I, I assumed that it was so far from what was originally written because how did they, you know, how do we have today what was about, you know, thousands and thousands of years old? And there's, I found there's a, a few scholars who they go and study how did the Bible get translated into the English version that I read today. And the more I studied this, and that's what I was kind of very overwhelmed with, because the more I studied it, a lot of my thoughts of why I didn't want to believe it was from God, I began finding there's plenty of evidence to believe that it is trustworthy. Most amazingly, the people of Israel end up uh, in exile in Babylon. And you would think that would be the end of Israel because every other people that was conquered by Babylon just sort of, you know, they were conquered, they were assimilated. Uh, we don't have any records uh, of those nations. And yet, at the moment when this empire has taken over uh, the people of Israel, these prophets arise and they say, God has, has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his people. And they, they give this picture of what's going to happen. Israel's going to return to the land. Uh, and in the land, God is going to meet his people. And then Jesus of Nazareth appears and his cousin, John the Baptist, says, you know, those prophecies from hundreds of years ago are being fulfilled now in this person. And the idea that this all connects, that the, that the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the 500s, 600s before the Common Era connect to what happens in Galilee uh, in zero of the Common Era, and that that connects to what happens in the church uh, 50 and 100 years later. It's just amazing. I was dyslexic as a kid, and... Um... I'd never read a book in my life. My religious education teacher in school, she, she lent me a Bible. And I'd never attempted to read a book from cover to cover. I'd kind of compensated for, for dyslexia. And um, as I read the Bible, I felt as though I was encountering someone who really I, I kind of knew already. If there was anything mystical about Christianity, it's in that moment where something kicks on in me, something turns on where I read something about God and it brings me joy and comfort and delight, or I read something that talks about what I'm like and it 
sings and it stings at the same time. You know, it's referencing the history of people and how they live their lives, and that's so applicable today, you know. One generation passing on stuff to the next generation and the consequences of that. There's a, a famous philosopher, his name is Alistair McIntyre, and he once said this. I love this quote. He says, um, the only way that I could ever answer the question, what am I supposed to do, is if I can answer the prior question, what story am I a part of? And you know, I think that's what the Bible is ultimately offering. It's offering a story. It's offering a better story, a story to help make sense of of, of our crazy human existence. I mean, all, all of us are living in some story. Just like Jesus, when people met him, they actually had very strong reactions to him. Um, I think the Bible produces that. It, it, it's, you just can't be as neutral about it as you can be even about other ancient religious texts. There's something about it that addresses us and kind of pushes us um, to decide what we're going to do with it.